Our scripture reading today is from the book of Colossians, chapter 4. If you don't have a copy of the scripture with you, we invite you to take the black book that's in front of you in the pew or underneath you if you're sitting on a chair, and you'll find it on page 985. Colossians 4, and we'll read from, from verse 2 to the end of the chapter. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also re read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Well, good morning. We are uh, in a series we're calling Dynamics of Church Life. And what we've been doing is exploring uh, what are the core values? What are the things that ought to... Um, stimulate change and even stability and growth within the life of a church. Uh, we're using the, the word dynamic in that sense. Uh, those forces or properties that bring about life and, and maturity. And of course, if you ask the question, what are the dynamics of life uh, in a church? There's a lot of different things we can talk about, right? Uh, but we, just for the sake of brevity, have to narrow it down. So we've narrowed it down to six. While there could be more that we talk about, uh, we are narrowing it out of six, and we begin with uh, this. The first core value was God's Word. The Bible is our life and authority. The book that uh, you're holding in your laps, the book that we just heard read, is this, this is the book that we get our authority from. And when we make the, the, this book, uh, the content of what we uh, preach and teach and how we regulate, regulate ourselves, when we read this Bible carefully, what we understand is that at its very heart, there is this uh, meta-narrative, a, a through line that is the good news about Jesus, our King and Savior, and that's the gospel. So that takes us to the second dynamic of life, 
uh, in a church, and that is the gospel. That, the gospel is simply, as we said a couple weeks ago, it is an announcement about Jesus and what he's done in bringing God's kingdom to us. The gospel is not advice. It's not uh, a, a way to get to God. The gospel is an announcement about what God has done to come to us. So that's the second uh, dynamic of life uh, that we looked at. When the gospel then comes into a person's life, when the good news about Jesus comes in, what kind of effect does it have? Well, what we said the gospel is is a news about how Jesus rules and reigns, and as king, Jesus puts his spirit into our lives, and that brings about spiritual renewal. So that's the third dynamic of life, uh, church life, spiritual renewal. That is God's spirit is always changing us to live out the life of Jesus. Now, Fourth, the fourth dynamic, the one we're going to focus on this morning, is the dynamic of dependent prayer. Dependent prayer. And I'm trying to show you the, the causal links uh, be, uh, between these dynamics so that you'll kind of see the flow here. When the Spirit of God resides within a person, we looked at last week from Romans chapter 8, what is God's Spirit saying within a believer? If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you have within you God's Spirit, and one of the things that God's Spirit does for you is testifies in an inward way that you are a child of God. The Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and He is the Spirit by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So when God's Spirit lives inside a person, what, is that, what does God's Spirit prompt the person to do? To pray to God as Father. So that's why the, the dependent prayer follows logically from spiritual renewal. If God's Spirit is within you, renewing you, changing you, then He is also telling you, you're, you're God's daughter, you're God's son, you're God's child, so you can cry out to Him as your Father. So, dependent prayer, we have chosen for the text is uh, Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, and we're going to be focusing on just that one verse, okay? And uh, what we're going to see here are uh, four features of prayer in the life of a church. All right, we're going to see that the church ought to pray together persistently, and I'll probably need to look at my notes because your mind works at different ways when you're in front of people. Uh, expect, yeah, a church should pray together persistently, expectantly, and gratefully. So those four features of prayer together as a church. So uh, first of all, we're going to see that the church ought to pray together. So Colossians 4 verse 2 says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Now, you say, I don't see the word together here. How, where'd you pull that from? <laughs> well, one, one um, unfortunate aspect of the English language is that it doesn't convey the plural when it comes to the second person. Now, this is maybe a New England thing. Uh, this is something that the South, an advantage that the South has over New England. I'm not dissing New England at all. Don't worry. But the South has this really cool world, word called y'all, okay? It's y'all. And when you say y'all, you know, you're talking to more than one person, right? It's not just you. So uh, normal English, normal English speakers, right, uh, don't, uh, don't distinguish between the, the plural and the singular when it comes to the second, second person. But, but in down south, you could say y'all. I think in Pennsylvania, did they say Ewans? Is that another way to pluralize? Someone's nodding, okay? Ewans, I've never used the word Ewans. I think that's the first time I've ever, it ever come, came out of my mouth. Uh, but, but if I ever call you Ewans, like shut me up or something because I don't want to get into the habit of that. But I may slip out of y'all now and then. It, it's just, what, what Paul is saying here is, y'all continue steadfastly in prayer. He's saying, this is something y'all should be doing. 
Not just you individually, but all of you together. And, and this is consistent with what we see throughout the, the, the rest of the New Testament. Uh, for example, in Acts chapter, Acts chapter 1 and then later on in Acts chapter 2, the, the disciples of Jesus are all together in one room. And what are they doing? They're devoting themselves. Actually, it's the same verb here. They're devoting themselves to prayer together. So the church ought to pray together. Now, th- this runs contrary to the way most Americans think about prayer. I was looking at some statistics on this that uh, a recent Barna poll discovered that um, 90, I think it's, no, sorry, around 80% of Americans say they've prayed within the past three months. And 55% of Americans say that they pray daily. But if, if this poll is correct, only 94%, or at least in the mid-90s, only 90-something percent of Americans actually pray aloud and with other people. And only 2% pray in church, aloud in church, like in a prayer meeting. Which tells us this, that what most people think about prayer and what most people think they're doing with prayer is very different than what the New Testament says we ought to be doing when it comes to prayer. And that is that prayer is something that it's assumed we're doing together. And there's another difference uh, between the way in, in American culture we tend to think about prayer and the way that the Bible speaks of prayer. And that is that a lot of people think of prayer as being uh, in the same category as mindfulness or meditation. But, but that's not prayer at all. Like Prayer is, is reasoned arguments. It, the mind is not empty. The mind is active when a person is praying. So, so prayer is something that we are to be doing actively together in other people's presence. Uh, we, we find this all throughout the New Testament. I'll cite another, a, a few other passages. 1 Corinthians 14, for example. Paul is saying that when you pray, people ought to be able to understand, hear and understand what you're saying. He said, otherwise, how can someone say amen unless they, if they don't know what they're saying amen to? So the word amen is comes from a Hebrew word meaning to confirm or to verify something. So when, when someone's praying, and maybe sometimes in the service, you hear someone, someone saying amen or in Jesus' name, amen. What they're saying is simply in Jesus' name, let it be. Or when someone is saying amen in a service or to something someone says, they're saying that is true, that is verified. Paul is saying if, you, if no one knows what you're saying, how can they say let it be true unless they understand what you're saying? Um, the Lord's Prayer, for example. Our Father in heaven. Doesn't it seem like that's something you should be praying with other people? You're saying our Father in heaven? It's it's a together thing? Now, you might be saying, wait just a second. I think I remember Jesus saying something about not praying in public. Did Jesus ever say something about not praying in public? Didn't Jesus say something like, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They stand in the corner of the streets or in the high places in the synagogues that all may be, see, but may be seen by them uh, or may, all may see them. When you pray, Jesus says, go into the closet, shut the door and pray to your father who sees in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. You say, preacher, you can't tell that we should be praying together in public because Jesus said to pray in your closet. But here's what Jesus was doing. Jesus wasn't saying we ought not to pray in public. He was just saying we ought not to be ostentatious in the way that we pray in public. He, he wasn't saying people ought not to pray out loud or with other people. He was simply saying, if you're going to pray, you shouldn't be praying just to get attention because you're praying to your Heavenly Father. And your Father can hear you whether you're in the street corner 
or whether you're in your closet. Your Father in heaven can hear you whether you're in, in church or whether you're at your home because your Father sees all. Jesus was not saying we ought not to pray in public. That does raise a question, though, because you think about the prayers of Jesus. If you read the Gospels, you will read that Jesus often prayed. Like Jesus was a prayer. Jesus prayed when he was getting baptized, the very beginning of his earthly ministry. His earthly ministry lasted about three years, from the time he was 30 years old to the time he was 33 or so. He was getting baptized. The Bible tells us that when he was getting baptized, he was praying. Later on, he spent an entire night praying before he chose his 12 disciples. And often, when Jesus was with his disciples, the Bible tells us that Jesus was praying and his disciples were with him. It seems, and if you read those passages, particularly in Luke, it seems a little weird that Jesus was praying and his disciples weren't praying with him. They were observing him pray. In fact, there is something so striking about Jesus' prayer, uh, prayers that his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus taught them. But it, it, it appears that something was wrong with Jesus' followers, even though they saw him pray and even though they heard him teach on prayer, because they just couldn't seem to pray themselves. In fact, in the Garden of Gethsemane, that is the, the garden where Jesus prayed before, uh, when he was arrested. Like Jesus gets arrested, and where he's arrested is this place called the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying, and he brings three of his closest disciples with him to, to pray with him, and they keep falling asleep. That may sound familiar to you, falling asleep in a prayer meeting. I mean, you can probably identify with, with the disciples that they keep falling asleep. Jesus goes back, and he wakes them up, and he says, can you please stay awake and pray with me? And they fall asleep again. And he goes back, can you please stay awake and pray with me, please? I mean, it's hard not to be judgmental to the disciples, right? I mean, you think if Jesus himself was saying, stay awake, can't they stay awake? But it just, they, they, they didn't pray. It almost seems like they couldn't pray until a few weeks later. A few weeks later, Jesus has died on the cross. He's come back alive and he's ascended back to heaven. And then something happens, and it's almost as if Jesus' followers can't stop praying. What changed? In fact, the, the momentum throughout the book of Acts is driven by a praying church. What happened between the time Jesus' closest disciples were falling asleep in a prayer meeting, and, and a few weeks later they can't stop praying? Here's what happened. Jesus put his spirit inside them, it's as if this, in order for God's people to pray like Jesus prayed, Jesus has to get inside them. And the way Jesus gets inside us is by sending his spirit to live within us so that we can begin living out the life of Jesus and begin praying like Jesus so that you and I as spirit indwelt people can pray together. That's what the church does. And that's what a church is. A church is a spirit indwelt gathering of people who when they gather speak to God as their Father and pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's what the church is. It's a, Jesus said it when he was on earth. He walked into the temple, and he discovers in the temple there was people that were, instead of using the temple as a play, place of prayer, they were using it as a place of commerce. They were, they were exchanging money, and they were selling animals, and Jesus takes a whip, and he drives them out, and he says, My Father's house is to be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. The temple is to be a place of prayer. 
now that Jesus' Spirit indwells people, we are His temple. We are the temple of God. And so we ought to pray together. The church should pray together. That's point number one. Why? I'm still on point number one. Okay. Why should we pray together? Well, because we love God together. It's, it's amazing what American individualistic culture has done to our relationships. We've, we all have just drifted apart and isolated. And yet, the church is a place where we come together, set aside our, our ethnic, racial, economic differences, and pray to God together. And in praying to God together, we discover we love Him more than if we had prayed all by ourselves. The Christian author C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book, The Four Loves. He talks about the, the value of another person in helping, in helping you love another, a third person. He said, C.S. Lewis at one point in his life lost a good friend. And that good friend, there was a mutual friend that he had. And he, and he said, when I lost this friend, I lost something of this other friend too. Why? Because this friend could bring something out of that friend that I couldn't bring out. You see, when, when we get together, we are able to show people aspects of God's beauty and perfections that all by ourselves we wouldn't see. For example, just this past Wednesday, I'm in a prayer meeting, Wednesday evening, right in the fellowship hall there. And as we're praying, we're praying for a young man in our church who's, who ha, is going to have major surgery. He had it uh, yesterday or the day before. And, and one of the ladies in the group that was, I was praying with, she started to cry when she was praying for this young man, when she was talking about the pain that he would be going through. And, and her, her compassion in that, as she was praying, reminded me of the compassion of Jesus, who when he saw people that were suffering, it, it, the Bible tells us that his bowels, the old King James says his bowels were moved with compassion. Like, it, it's this visceral, it's this visceral thing that Jesus felt. And what I was seeing and what I was experiencing is, is the glory of my Jesus being on display as I'm praying with other people. I wouldn't have seen that by myself. I wouldn't have enjoyed the compassion of Jesus unless I had seen it refracted through the compassion of a follower of Jesus. That's what praying together does. Because we love together and we love God together. Unless you have been in a prayer meeting like what I'm describing, you can't really understand the life of a church. I'm going to say that again because I really want this to hit home with us. Unless you've been in a prayer meeting, like a time when people gather and they're just praying together. It's not just one guy praying up at the, at the front of the building, at the front of the room, like we did, which is important today. But when, when multiple people are praying together and you are participating with them and you're hearing them, it, it's, hard, it's hard to say that you really understand what the life of the church is like unless you understand what the church is like when they're praying together. It's, it's hard for you to understand how, Trinity, how is Trinity Baptist Church doing as a church? It's hard to really know unless you hear them pray together as a church, because that's how we're doing as a church. And, and it may be that you go to a, a prayer meeting and you're like, well, I don't think that went very well. Well, maybe we're not doing very well as a church. Or maybe you go to a prayer meeting and you're like, wow, that, they're really talking to God. They are engaged with God. They're communicating with, they're speaking to God as if they really believe God is in the midst of them because He is that's what a church ought to do. 
It's so important that we be gathering with the people of God praying. And this is the assumption here. When Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, he's saying, you all pray together. Now, you might think from this then that prayer would just be kind of a spontaneous thing. It's just easy to do because God's Spirit is within us, just bursting forth and overflowing in prayer, and I just should be able to do this really easily. Well, the next uh, point, and that is persistence. We, the, prayer, the church should pray persistently, kind of dispels that, because the verb that's translated continue steadfastly connotes hard work. This is not necessarily easy. The, the word that's uh, rendered, it's actually one word in Greek, two words in English, continue steadfastly. It's the same word that is used to describe an army besieging a walled city. This army gathers around the city, and they are going to camp out there until the gates open. And they're going to stick with it until the job is done. And it's going to rain on them, snow on them, the wind will blow on them, the sun will bake them. It doesn't matter. They will be there until the doors come flying open. That's persistence. And that's the way we ought to pray. Persistent prayer. Well, you think that kind of seems like a lot of work. Yes, it is. Why do we need to be persistent in prayer? Well, I could think of some reasons. I could think of the world, the flesh, and the devil, that unholy trinity. The world, okay, think about it. Prayer is not like, it's not like Amazon one next day ordering, right? It's not Amazon Prime. It's not like you get like one click and the next day or even sooner it shows up on your doorstep. Our world is an instantaneous, fast-moving, results-driven world. And it trains us to expect things to happen when we want them to happen. And so when we pray, and we work really hard, and we're patient, and when five minutes feels like 20 minutes, and we, we, we think, okay, what's going to happen now? Something ought to happen, because that's the way I'm used to things happening, and it doesn't. And so it could discourage us from being persistent in prayer. Well, what about the flesh? Well, like the, fl- the, the flesh, I'm not referring to like the physical component of my body. I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking about that uh, the aspect of me that doesn't rely on God, that isn't building my life on God. And I tend to want to do things on my own. Like I want, I want to feel like I'm in charge of my life. I want to feel like I ha- I'm self-sufficient. And praying is like the opposite of that. Prayer requires that I lean and depend not on myself, but on God. And so that's another reason why I need to persist in prayer, because I have this, this self-oriented dependence about me. And then, believe it or not, there is the devil who does not want you to pray. It's, it's, not, it's, it's very popular to dismiss the idea of, of unseen spir- uh, spiritual forces in, in our culture, but other... Other non-Western cultures know better. That there are forces of darkness and they are at work to undermine your faith in God, to bring chaos into your life, and that the prince of darkness does not want to see you on your knees because he knows when he sees you on your knees, you are, you are communing with his enemy, God. And that's bad news for the devil. 
William Cooper, the British 18th century British uh, poet, says the weakest the the devil trembles when he sees the weakest Christian on his knees. Why? Because when even the weakest Christian kneels in prayer, he's accessing a power that is beyond himself that can defeat and dispel the darkness. But the devil doesn't want you to do it. So the excuses that come into your mind. When you think, oh, maybe I should set aside a 15 minutes this morning to, uh, to pray, the excuses that come into your mind are not just generated from yourself, they're generated quite possibly from the prince of darkness, Grim. And that's why we need to be persistent in prayer because we realize when we are praying, we are suddenly stepping into a spiritual war zone. We must be persistent in prayer. But there are also some positive motives for being persistent in prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer, positively, because when we pray, we are asking for great things. We are coming to a king. Why not linger longer? Why not ask him for... Do you think about what you're, what you're doing when you pray? Is it not worth spending a little more time than you think that you, you might, uh, you, you could afford that day because of who you're talking to? An example of persistent prayer we see right in our chapter. Look at verse 12, Epaphras. Chapter 4, verse 12. This guy named Epaphras. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. Why do you think he was so eager to greet them? Well, what has he been doing? He's been struggling on their behalf with prayers. What is he struggling for? Why is he being so persistent in prayers? Because he sees great things for them. He's thinking about the people of Colossae, and he's thinking, oh, they could be so much more mature spiritually than they are now. What a great thing that would be. And so I'm going to struggle on my knees, and I'm going to work hard begging God, arguing with God, pleading with God that those people would know how much God loves them. Now, that's a great reason to persist in prayer, and we have an example of that right here in this chapter. What does Paul mean when he says in verse 13, I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Worked hard? Worked hard how? Worked hard by praying. I imagine the Apostle Paul would sometimes hear from the other room or perhaps maybe they're in a tent somewhere in their travels or maybe even in a, in a, in a prison cell next to his, he hears the voice of, of Epaphras saying, Lord, strengthen them. Lord Jesus, protect them from temptation. Oh, Lord Jesus, I know that they will be going past, the, past the, the, idol, the temple of idols, and they'll be drawn back there to those feasts and the orgies and the sins that they had engaged in. Oh, Lord, deliver them from evil. He's, he's working hard for them. He's praying for them. He's persistent in prayer because he has great things to ask for. Those are motivations for persistence in prayer. I think one of the reasons why we fail to be persistent in prayer is because we don't realize what great things we have access to when we pray. I heard somewhere, and I, I, for the life of me, I could not track down the source of this illustration, but in the mid-20th century, I, um, I, an American company went into a Latin American country and set up a factory there and hired these, uh, these workers, and they began to pay them more than what they had ever pay, been paid before. Um, and, and yet the economy in the area didn't improve. Like, they had, these people were getting a lot of money because they were employed by the American um, firm, but they weren't, they weren't, their standard of living wasn't 
raising at all, and they weren't buying the things they could buy, could have bought. And, and the, the American company realized the reason is because they couldn't even conceive of the kinds of things their money could buy. So they sent them some old Sears and Roebuck, Roebuck catalogs. And they, they sent them some catalogs, and they began, like, looking at these pi- picture after pictures of all kinds of things they could buy. And then they started buying. Now, this is not a, a promotion of American, exporting American capitalism. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say sometimes we, we are just limited by our imagination and what we can pray for. Let, let's ransack the pages of Scripture as, as a catalog, as it were, of the great things God wants for us so that we have more to pray for. That should motivate our prayers. We should pray persistently. I wonder if you need some encouragement along these lines. You have been praying for a long time for someone you love really dearly, that they would trust in Christ, and you are thinking about giving up. I was looking this past week at our our prayer list of, of people whose names have been on that list ever since I first came here five years ago, and I think they've been here there much longer before, and we've been praying for them week after week after week. And, and you may think, well, I'll just leave it on the prayer list because it'd be kind of weird to take it off, but I'm kind of giving up praying for them. Don't give up. We need to be persistent in prayer. Maybe you've been praying for, maybe there's a relational strain between you and a child you and a parent, a sibling. And it's been going on almost a decade. A spouse. And you've been praying about it and, and you feel like nothing's happening. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Don't give up. Now, there's another feature of the praying church that we see and that is in the words, being watchful in it. So verse 2, again, continue steadfastly in prayer. We see that that's some praying is something we ought to do together. It's something we ought to do persistently. And third, it's something we ought to do expectantly. Expectantly. Now, the word that's translated being watchful is the word, it simply means to to stay awake. It's actually the word that Jesus used with his disciples when he said to stay awake during the prayer meeting. Wake up, be alert. Um, and, and yes, it would be helpful for us to stay awake in prayer meetings, okay? That, that would be just a very concrete, down-to-earth application of this verse. Let's all stay awake. Don't, don't go asleep now, right? And, and let's, let's broaden that application to preaching times too, okay? Stay awake during those times too. But, but it's even, uh, even more broadly and more deeply than that, it carries the idea of when you do pray, you've prayed together and you've prayed persistently. Now, having prayed, be on the lookout for how God is going to answer that prayer. Stay alert. You, you've prayed, haven't you? Okay, now, now, don't just, don't just get drowsy, spiritually speaking. Now is the time to see where's the answer. Be, pr- pray expectantly. If you prayed, if you had enough faith to pray, Don't you have enough faith to expect God to answer your prayer and to be alert to the answer? So the principle here is, when it comes to expectant prayer, is the unexpectedly better. In Ephesians 3, Paul says that God is able to do exceedingly above 
all that we can ask or think. Which means sometimes when you pray, what you asked for wasn't as good as what God actually wanted to give you. And so when he answers that prayer, he answers it by giving you something better than what you asked for. And, he, what he, and the answer that he gives you, you didn't even think about, at the, you didn't even think to ask him. But he can do exceedingly above what you could even ask or think. And obviously you can't ask for what you can't think, and so it's both. It's right, you, God can do above. And so there's the, when in expected prayer, there's the principle of the unexpectedly better. And, and when God does something unexpectedly better, it's usually different than exactly what you asked for. It's going to be, and I'm going to borrow a phrase from Ephesians 3, it's going to be according to the power at work within you. In other words, God's spirit within you, he's already at work in you. He's already doing something in you. It's going to be, there's going to be a continuity with the kinds of things that God is already doing. And to finish out Paul's statement there from Ephesians chapter 3, it's all for his glory. So whatever happens in response to your prayer, it's not going to leave you at the center of the spotlight. It's not going to leave you just puffed up and boasting. It's going to make God get all the glory like the spotlight will be on God in answer to that prayer that's the unexpectedly better now I want to give you some illustrations of this I'm going to give a really kind of a lame illustration for my life which I could I wish I could be better but maybe as I grow in my prayer life it will be and then I give, I'm going to give you some better illustrations of the lives of some other people so for example this is just a humble example that I want to offer to you and maybe It'll be more encouraging because it's the smaller it is. But I have been praying that I would be a more praying man. Just personally, I have been praying that I'd be a better prayer. I was in two, two Sundays ago, I was in my office early Sunday morning, reading a book on prayer and saying, Lord, I, w- I want to become, a, I want to pray more as a pastor, as a man. And after I got done praying that, I went to reach for my backpack, which is where I keep my laptop, so I could begin putting the finishing touches on my sermon before I preach it, which is what I do every single Sunday. And I reach in my laptop, and I realized it wasn't there. I left it at home. Now, everyone's supposed to have a select, collective sigh of disappointment for me, okay? Like, that's, that was your cue to say, oh, I'm so sorry. That's too bad, because it's so disappointing when you, something, you, that means that I'm going to have to drive back home and come back to be, to, to, to finish my work. And so, those kinds of drives are never fun because you realize I wouldn't be doing this if I hadn't forgotten that and it's just a bummer. And then as I got in my car, I realized now I have more time to pray. God, God knew that I probably wouldn't have prayed that that much more if he hadn't made me. And God was answering my prayer in a way that was unexpectedly better. And that's the kind of way God works. When you ask God for something, He is working in a way that you probably didn't think about, but He's answering that prayer in a way that gets Him the glory. He gets honored. And so all you can say is, God, thank you. James Frazier. He was a missionary in the early 20th century to the Lisu Chinese people. 
he went to southwest China in 1910. He worked there for five years with little success. The people in that region of China were, were just steeped into uh, spirit worship. Uh, there were family connections that made this very hard for an individual to break out of it by him or herself without being ostracized by a family. So this, there, was, there were some cultural things that were up against him, and he was trying to bring them to Christianity, to Christ. Some had even professed faith in Christ, but they had drip, drifted back into idol worship. And so he sent a, uh, letters to his supporting churches saying, please pray for me. But he was so discouraged, he was going to write a letter to his sending missions agency and say, um, please reassign me. I'm not being successful in this region with the Lisu uh, Chinese. Assign me to someplace else because apparently I'm not being effective here. But he decided he would try one more time. Uh, he was praying specifically that 200 families in that region would trust in Christ. As he preached one last time, what he thought would be one last time, and the next day, he was packing up to leave, and his Chinese assistant said, hey, there's someone here that wants to talk to you. And it was a family that had come, and they said, we, we want to trust Christ. Within the next two months, 129 families had trusted in Christ. This was God's answer to his prayer. And although uh, James Fraser didn't live to see the full 200 families trust in Christ, he died in 1938, it, in the 1990s, the Chinese government acknowledged that 90% of Lisu Chinese are Christians. And I, I checked just this morning the best sources I could find as of 2008. There are more than 700,000 Lisu Christians in, living in China. Now, when, when we pray, God answers in ways that are unexpectedly better and ways that he gets the glory. Many of you are familiar with the name George Mueller. It was a couple years ago or so that I finished reading a, uh, to my kids a, a, a biography of George Mueller. But he's best known, he, he lived most of the 19th century. He was born in early 1800s, died in 1898. He was best known for establishing orphanages. Um, at that time, those of you who are familiar with the history of England may know that uh, there was a big problem with orphaned children. There were accommodations for th uh, 3,600 orphaned children, most from wealthy families, but twice that many children, so twice 3,600, 3, under the age of eight were in prisons because they didn't have any place for them to be. And, and George Mueller had moved from Germany to become a pastor in Tainmouth, England. And he began to be burdened for all these children that were in prisons, and he wanted to build orphanages for them, and he began praying about this. And you, I mean, there's story after story after story of the mind-boggling ways in which God answered his prayers. But during his lifetime, he cared for 10,024 orphans and built large, five large orphan houses. The amount of money that George Mueller raised just by praying is, is almost unbelievable. He, he determined early as a young man that he was never going to ask another individual for funds. He was always going to ask God to lay it on a person's heart, and, and he, and he stuck, stuck with that. And he would pray that, he would pray for specific amounts of money, and he has a detailed record of 
God's answers to prayer, like right down to the, I know it's not dollars and cents because it's British currency, I can't understand British currency, but right down to the dollar and cents, God answering his prayers. They estimate that in today's currency, he, over his lifetime, raised $142 million. Most of it was used for supporting the orphanages, but much of it he sent overseas for missions work, Bible translations, printing Bibles. And th- this is, this, I give you just one example because it's typical of the kinds of things that, that would happen to him. He was, in the early days of his first orphanage, they, they, uh, they ran, it wasn't, wasn't thousands of children, it was just a few dozen, I believe, but they ran out of food for breakfast and they, they literally didn't have food to eat in the morning, and he was praying about it. And they sat around the table to thank God for the breakfast that they didn't have yet. And there was a knock at the door, and they opened the door, and it was a local baker who said he could not get to sleep the night before. He just couldn't sleep. In the, and he said, I kept on thinking about those orphans, and I just wanted to give them something and so i woke up at 2 a.m this morning and baked bread for them and i have it right outside here do you need some bread it wasn't long after that that there was another knock at the door and the milkman had broken an axle right outside the uh the orphanage and couldn't get the milk any to make his deliveries and so he hauled it all into the orphanage so so that they could they could have milk for that morning and these these are the ways in which god in his grace, answer these prayers. And the point of this is not to say that God is some kind of cosmic uh, vending machine that we can push buttons and make, make things come out. That's not the point of this at all. The point is that, that this, is, this is within God's power to answer prayers. We often forget this. Our faith often grows weak. And maybe it's because we're praying things that we ought not to be praying for. But when we do pray, we can pray expectantly. And fourth, the church, I'll just review, the church should pray together, the church should pray persistently, the church should pray expectantly, and fourth, the church should pray gratefully, gratefully. Notice verse 2 of chapter 4 continues, steadfastly in prayer, watching, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now, it's very interesting to note the order, the sequence of the thanksgiving. It doesn't say being watchful in it, And then after God answers your prayer in a way you understand and are satisfied with it, then you thank God. Our gratitude comes even before the answer. Why? And and this is... This is not the only place in the New Testament that talks about gratitude in our prayers. Same thing in Philippians 4 and, and earlier in Colossians. Why is gratitude such an important part of praying even before we get the answer? Well, it has to do with the very reason we can pray at all. Do you realize what it took for you to be able to call God your Father? How many times have you in maybe growing up years in a church somewhere or in some sort of gathering quoted the Lord's Prayer, our Father in Heaven, and you didn't even realize what it took for you to be able to call God Father? Jesus, I told you earlier, had a prayer life. He was, uh, he prayed unlike any, anyone, anyone had known. And 
I told you earlier that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed and his disciples couldn't stay awake during that prayer. But do you know what he was praying? He was praying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But if not, not my will, but yours be done. That's what Jesus was praying. And by cup, Jesus was referring to metaphorically, symbolically, something that he must drink down to its very dregs, and that was the wrath of God, abandonment by God. Jesus was saying this, I'm going to face something I don't want to face. And if it's possible, Father, please don't make me drink it, but I will if that's your will. And one of his last prayers that he cried out on the cross was this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why God forsook the man who, who walked with him perfectly, who was always in communion with you? Why would the Father turn his back on the Son? Why would the Son, who always did what was pleasing to his Father, cry out, Why have you forsaken me? He was being forsaken for our sake so that those who trust in Jesus would never be forsaken by God, so that we can call God Father. That's what Jesus was doing when he died on the cross. That's why you and I can pray. That's why we ought to pray with gratitude, because we're recognizing Jesus has opened up the way for me to come to God, not as a malevolent deity, not as a bully, not as someone who is cold and distant, but as my loving Heavenly Father. That's why we can pray with gratitude. And that's why we can live a life of prayer. That's why we can, we can pray by ourselves in the closet or in public with other people. That's why we can pray with a small group of people in a prayer meeting or a large group of people like this gathering here. That's why all our lives can be given to prayer. That's why, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, pray without ceasing because our life can be a constant conversation with God as our Father. Pray with gratitude. This also means something incredibly important for anybody in this room for whom prayer is kind of a foreign thing because God is not your father. You might say, well, I thought God is the father of everybody. Okay, well, God is the creator of everyone, but God enters into a father relationship only with those who trust in Jesus, his son. So unless you have done that or are doing that, you, God is not your father. It's not mean to say that. It's not unkind to say that. It's just the truth of God's word. Why? Because without trusting on Jesus Christ, you don't have the spirit of adoption in you crying out, Abba, Father. So what, what you have to do, and I, you, you know if I'm speaking to you, you know who you are. You must trust in Jesus Christ. You must, you must subscribe to him as your king, as your protector, as your rescuer because of his death and his resurrection on your behalf. He is the king that can protect you and can bring you into eternity forever and have a relationship with God. That's what you must do. Would you do that this morning? You can. All you need to do is ask him to save you. And for those of you who have, <clears throat> excuse me, for those of you who have, is the fact that Jesus is your king and that you're, you are 
indwelt with his spirit, is it making you a praying person? I have been praying that we would be a praying church. And the point of us being a praying church is not to make prayer central. A church prays not because prayer is central, but because God is central. A long time ago, when I was first starting to date my wife, we started talking a lot with each other. We'd talk at meals. We'd talk when we'd go between classes. We'd, we would talk on the phone. And my friends began to notice, and they were like, oh, you, you must really like Krista. I was like, yeah, I do. No one ever said to me, man, you've really gotten into talking. Talking must be your big deal now. You must be really into communing. No, no, no. I was into talking because I was into Krista. And communicating with her was, became important because she became important. My friends, when God becomes important to us, prayer will become normal to us. And that's what I'm praying will happen in our church. It's, it's as simple as this. In a church in which God is not important, prayer is not regular. Prayer is not normal. But in a church where God is important, prayer becomes normal. And that's true of a church, and it's true of an individual too. Would you bow your heads with me? We need to talk to God about this. A moment of, of quiet reflection. I, first of all, want to ask those of you who, who uh, knew I was, I was talking to you when I said you haven't trusted in Jesus as your Savior. There may be objections in your mind or questions in your mind. If that's the case, please, please get them answered. I'm going to stand right here at the front at the conclusion of this, right after our last song. I, I would love to be able to talk with you. Don't, be, don't hesitate about coming down. Other people may be talking with me. And, and get those questions answered. And if you are sensing, on the other hand, you've trusted in Jesus Christ and you need to pray more or be more committed to praying together as a church, then talk to God about that too. The first step in becoming a praying person is guess what? Pray. Pray about it. Would you spend a moment doing that while Brian plays a verse of our song and then we'll sing together.